It's time for our regular segment, Legally Speaking, joined by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. There are some contentious and interesting stories on the docket this week, including a matter involving a woman in her 20s engaging in sexual relations with a teenage boy and the sentence handed down following those encounters. What can you tell us? Yes, indeed. And this is a local case from uh, Western communities. Um, The first thing to be aware of, by way of background, is that in Canada, there was a change in 2008 to the age of consent for sexual activity. Prior to the change in 2008, the age that somebody was allowed to legally consent to sexual activity was 14. And in 2008, they increased that from 14 to 16. Uh, But they did include uh, a couple of exceptions. Uh, There are exceptions including what are sometimes referred to as close-in-age exceptions, uh, and that would mean that somebody who is uh, within uh, two years of somebody who's 12 or 13, right, there could be consent for, you know, you don't want to be prosecuting uh, two young people who are consensually doing something. Yes. Uh, And as well, there's an exception for close-in-age of five years for Uh, where the uh, complainant is 14 or 15 years of age. So that would allow a 15-year-old to consent uh, to activity for somebody who's up to 20, depending if you just look at their birthdays. Um, Now, those don't always apply. Like They wouldn't apply if there was some position of trust or authority, right? So you have to be careful with that. Uh, And then there's another issue, which is an issue involving Uh, mistaken belief in somebody's age. Hmm. Uh, Because in the criminal law, we punish people who knowingly do something wrong, right? We don't generally punish people for mistakes. But with respect to uh, age and ability to consent, there's a special provision in the criminal code that provides that if somebody's relying upon a mistake in age, they are required to take all reasonable steps to determine the age of the person. Now, that can be a sliding scale of yeah. what would be required. All steps. The case we're dealing with. Yeah, the word all. Really. all yeah. yeah. Now, there could be some circumstances where all reasonable steps would be nothing more than looking at the person, right? Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, no offense, but I'm sure if somebody looked at you, they would need to take no other steps to determine that you're over the age of 16. Indeed, right? yes. You look at you and say, okay, that's all I need to do, right? But if you ran into somebody at the junior high school, well, you better be checking birth certificates, getting affidavits, uh, interviewing people, you know, lie detector tests. You could get there, but boy, you better be thorough. Now, that brings us to the case, the local case we're dealing with. And one of the interesting things about it uh, are the gender rules, because the accused in this case was a 24 or 25-year-old woman. It was a little unclear on the evidence. Hmm. And the complainant was a 15-year-old. And the context was that the 15-year-old with some other young people met the accused uh, and another woman uh, and offered to swap marijuana for alcohol. Hmm. And they wound up having a party together. Uh, And the party led to (laughs) lap dancing and clothes coming off and and eventually sexual activity between the either it was unclear 24 or 25 year old woman and the 15 year old. Uh, And there was also evidence in this case that the 15 year old uh, may have claimed to have been 18 years of age. 
Uh, and uh, as well, there was evidence that the woman had asked him about that. Are you sure you're 18? Hmm. And again, the answer was yes. And, and then her evidence was he said, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't. Hmm. Uh, and then also the evidence was that not only was there in a, not in a legal way, but in a sort of factual way, the 15-year-old uh, boy was very eager <laughs> to engage in the sexual activity. But that doesn't matter from a legal perspective. Uh, if the person isn't of age where they're, in, as a matter of law, able to consent, right, no matter how willing the person might appear, yeah. that's not sufficient. And here, the judge found that the onus, of course, remains on the adult. Uh, and even where uh, you've got somebody who's very eager, and even where they may have claimed to have been older, the judge found that the woman had not taken all reasonable steps to inquire. And mm. the judge took into account things like there was a doubt in her mind because she asked him, are you sure you're 18, right? Yeah. But she said, there's well, yes, right? Uh, but... Uh, you know, on the circumstances and fact pattern here, that wasn't enough. Wow. Uh, and so the woman was convicted of sexual assault for engaging in this activity with the uh, 15-year-old. Then internet luring, because she sent a text message to him a short time later saying, you want to come over for a hot makeout sesh? Wow. <laughs> that was internet luring. And then he did come over and they engaged in sexual activity again. Uh, and he was, she was sentenced to, and this is despite the fact that she had no previous record, that the judge found she was a low risk to reoffend. The fact that she had been sexually assaulted when she was a child, uh, and the fact that she had herself a child that she took care of. Um, despite all those factors, the judge sentenced her to five and a half years in the penitentiary. Wow. And in so doing, the judge made reference to the fact that there was a Supreme Court of Canada case dealing with sentencing where the court said mid-range penitentiary terms should be not exceptional where there's a conviction for sexual assault involving a child. Mm. And the uh, judge concluded that it would be, and this is sort of an interesting analysis of it, he said it would be unfair to men who were uh, convicted to not impose such a long sentence on a woman. Huh which is an interesting analysis. I'm yeah. not sure how, quite how I scratched my head a little bit uh, at that. I, I'm not sure that the fairness to other people necessarily would be a, uh, an element in sentencing, but the judge found that it was not, I, I suppose, a mitigating or a factor that the accused was female and not male. Uh, and as well, uh, the judge found uh, that it would not be appropriate to reduce the sentence, taking into account that the uh, woman who was convicted was the mother of a uh, child who she took care of. And she said, look, the judge said, look, there are other people. The father could take care of the child uh, or, or uh, a relative. Uh, and so a very substantial penitentiary sentence handed out on that fact pattern, which has a number of thought-provoking elements to it people should be aware of, starting with that issue of taking all reasonable steps. Uh, and even though in this case, the evidence seems to be that the 15-year-old claimed to be older, and she may have even asked him again about that. Uh, and there were some other elements. Of course, this person's got marijuana. That might be some uh, indication of something, because there's a yeah. need to do that. Uh, but none of that was enough. More was required. And then even though um, they, uh, this person could have consented, if this had occurred in 2008, that doesn't matter. The law changed. Uh, interestingly, there was another woman uh, mm -hmm. who was also charged. She was acquitted, and it would appear she didn't testify. And the reason for the acquittal 
uh, she engaged allegedly in some sexual activity with another young person. There was no evidence as to how old she was. Huh. And so the problem became, it was unclear to the judge whether the there was a gap of less than five years between her and the other person. Because if somebody is 15, you could consent to sexual activity with somebody who's 19, for example. Hmm. And if you don't know how old the accused is, you can't tell that. Interesting. And so in that case, the judge acquitted. But this woman, this accused, testified, and she wanted to give the evidence, I suppose, about asking him his age and him confirming the age and so on. Uh, but in so doing, she had to provide her own age. And so the result for her was a conviction and now a very uh, long penitentiary sentence. All right. Let's take our first break here at CFAX 1070. Legally speaking, we'll continue with analysis of a recent decision involving Victoria School Board trustees. I'm very interested to hear Michael's thoughts on this matter right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070 as we continue with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, helping us better understand recent legal decisions and their implications in the community. Now, Michael, this next one is one that I actually was asked about on the program, and I declined to comment because the legalities of it were beyond my ability to understand. It involves the Greater Victoria School Board and whether or not authority existed to suspend two elected trustees. Help us understand all this. Yes, indeed. So first of all, I should say thank you to everyone who's doing things like serving on school boards or running for uh, municipal office. I'm sure in many cases it's a pretty thankless uh, uh, task. Um, in Victoria, the background of this, according to the uh, uh, decision that just came out, was that there had been for some period of time a split on the, the school boards, uh, School District 61 in Victoria, uh, a five-trustee majority and a four-trustee minority on the board who had uh, apparently disagreements about things. Yes. And the case involved two of the minority. Um, and the uh, there were allegations made that the uh, two members of the minority group of four on the school board uh, had engaged in behavior that was uh, harassing or disrespectful with respect to staff members. Um, uh, staff members of the board, uh, and uh, it was alleged those occurred online and at uh, meetings. That was the essence of it. Yes. Um, and so the majority of the board uh, had an investigation done into that, found that these the two minority members uh, had done that in their view, um, and decided to suspend them from continuing to sit on the board. Yes. Uh, and so that decision to suspend the two and not let them attend meetings went to court, not surprisingly. Um, and the BC Supreme Court judge concluded that the board lacked legal authority to do what they did. They simply weren't permitted to suspend elected um, uh, members uh, on that basis. And the legal analysis involved the judge uh, analyzing the School Act. We have an act for everything, <laughs> including the School Act. Um, and the approach that the board, the majority of the board took, or what they argued, was even though the School Act doesn't have any specific provision that allows for the majority to suspend elected representatives uh, because of uh, alleged misconduct, they argued that by necessary implication, that must be allowed. Hmm. Um, and so when that kind of an argument is made, what a judge is doing is they're looking at the legislation, trying to figure out, 
is this something which is uh, required by necessary implication, right? Sometimes if legislation says you can do X, it's sort of implied. It must have meant the legislature included or, you know, contemplated doing Y to allow you to do X, right? Um, and so that's how that's what the judge was analyzing. But ultimately, the judge concluded that, uh, no, the school act had a amounted to what the judge found to be a complete code dealing with when somebody could be disqualified uh, from holding office. Like, mm-hmm. for example, the school act provides that if a trustee refuses to take the oath of office, <laughs> they're disqualified. Hmm. Uh, or if a trustee is continually absent from board meetings for a period of three consecutive months, unless that's a result of illness, uh, they can be disqualified, and so on. And so the judge said, look, the legislature passing the School Act did contemplate various circumstances in which somebody could be disqualified. They failed to show up. They won't take their oath of office, etc. cetera. Uh, and so that's it. Uh, you can't have a circumstance where the majority decides to prevent the elected representatives from showing up and, you know, performing their uh, elected roles, right? You can imagine what mischief could come of that, Yeah. right? It's, you know, you just can't have a circumstance where a government says, for example, we're a majority, we are going to exclude the opposition from the uh, legislature. Well, exactly. Right? They're yeah. disrespectful. Yeah. The system can't function that way. And... and well, I appreciate the, the argument about sort of a necessary implication, and I appreciate as well sort of the arguments about, uh, you know, boy, we have to somehow keep control of things, right? Yes. Um, it, the, uh, and in some cases, I should say, and it's not an argument which is completely from left field, because the school board um, referenced circumstances where um, city councils had taken some steps when members had, for example, uh, one case involved a member looked like releasing confidential information. Yes. Right? Uh, and in that case, the uh, uh, city council uh, removed, passed a motion of censure, that's sort of a nominal thing, and then removed the individual from sitting on particular um, committees, for example, for a period of time. But it wasn't as if they were you know, removed entirely from city council because they didn't like how they conducted themselves. Uh, and so that was an example of something which the in the context of local government and this different piece of legislation found that that was by necessary implication the kind of thing that could be done uh, to censure somebody for some serious misconduct. But that's a different thing from, you know, not allowing the person to act in their elected role at all, Right. That would be sort of in the uh, legislative example. It would be like saying, "Okay, we don't want this MLE to be on the, you know, vacation committee or something, uh, and we're going to pass a resolution saying your behavior is inappropriate." That's a different thing from telling an elected person you can't participate at all because you've just disenfranchised all the people who voted for that person, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's not as if there's a circumstance where nothing can be done. But what was done here, the judge found, was not authorized by the legislation. Uh, is obviously uh, has the possibility of pretty serious mischief uh, if you have elected people unable to continue. Um, And as well, I I suppose my other view of it when I read this uh, decision um, is, you know, I think we do sometimes have this uh, sort of expectation that a person's going to be 
completely canceled <laughs> as a result of some behavior that you know may or may or may not have been appropriate. I don't form any judgment on that. I don't. Hmm. It's not even clear here precisely what these people did or were alleged to have done, right? But it's not always necessary, at least in my view, that the response to even if conduct was not appropriate in some way, say we want to completely cancel this person so they can't show up at all. Uh, that seems like it may be uh, over the top. Uh, but the, the judge here found that uh, they didn't need to get into an analysis of procedural fairness or any of those things simply because the board lacked the authority to do what it did. And so these uh, two people are now back on the board right before the election, uh, and the uh, school board has been ordered to pay the legal costs uh, resulting from this decision. So okay. uh, the two minority people are back, and I guess we'll see what the uh, voters think in the uh, upcoming election. All right. Thanks for helping us understand that one, because it was a complicated one. And I, and I know people who are involved, like Ryan Painter, the chair of the board, has been on these airwaves any number of times over the years. So I, I didn't really want to get into trying to analyze this one. So I really appreciate your analysis, Michael. Thank you. And once again, thank you for everyone. It's, it's amazing to me for some of these positions, which would be time-consuming and paid little <laughs> uh, to spend a whole bunch of time working on issues that could be important to a lot of people. It's amazing to me that there is a election for school board and that there are more people than our seats willing to do that work. I would yeah. have thought with some of these positions, it would be a matter of sending out a, a dragnet trying to dragoon <laughs> people into spending their evenings. It's a punishment. On that. <laughs> Not a, you know, hotly contested matter with factions and so on. But uh, anyways, it's a good sign for democracy. And I suppose uh, bodes well for volunteerism generally that you've got uh, people willing to spend their time doing it. So thank you to everyone who's uh, been serving in that way and are running and volunteering to do it. It's uh, pretty remarkable. Absolutely. We have five minutes remaining in our segment and one more story, an appeal of a decision dismissing a human rights tribunal claim of discrimination. And there's a firing, an academic advisor. There's a dating app involved here. What's this all about? Yeah, so this was a, a person who was a, a academic advisor at UBC, uh, and the academic uh, advisor was uh, using a uh, dating app for gay men. Um, and the dating app uh, is one which would be uh, based on your uh, geographical location, like it would, I guess, try to uh, hook people up uh, who were nearby. Uh, and the challenge for the um, academic advisor uh, I guess for twofold. One was that uh, he at some point had linked up that he was enlisted, that he was in fact a UBC academic advisor on the app, uh, and then uh, he had his address where all the students were. Uh, and he wound, wound up through the app meeting, uh, I think it was sort of 20 students, one of whom was somebody he had advised. Um, although that person, there's some meeting arranged, but that person didn't show up. Uh, and UBC got wind of this, and they fired him. <laughs> and uh, he made a human rights complaint. And his human rights complaint was that uh, he alleged he had been discriminated against based on his sexual orientation. Hmm. Uh, because he said, well, you wouldn't have done this, uh, or he didn't think that would have happened uh, if somebody was using a dating app for people who weren't gay. Hmm. Um, and so that was the issue for the Human Rights Tribunal. Now, the University of British Columbia um, applied to the Human Rights Tribunal to have the uh, claim dismissed without even having a hearing, uh, and they succeeded. Uh, 
and so that resulted in the fired academic advisor bringing a judicial review first to the BC Supreme Court and then to the BC Court of Appeal, which is what brought us to the decision that just came out. Um, and the uh, fired academic advisor uh, was uh, arguing uh, that there would be some reason to believe that his sexual orientation was at least uh, part of uh, or may have played a part in the decision to fire him rather than impose some lesser penalty. Hmm. Uh, and he pointed out that uh, there were other people who worked at the university who were on other dating apps and they weren't fired. And he pointed out as well uh, that at the time, there was no express provision in the UBC code of conduct that said an employee could not engage in intimate activity with a student. Hmm. Um, there were provisions that talked about not using inherent power imbalance or for personal benefits or the more generic terminology. Yes. But he pointed out there wasn't an express prohibition uh, uh, on that. And so he wanted to have an opportunity to, I suppose, at a hearing, be able to ask questions and try to explore whether uh, there was some element of uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation. And that's an interesting uh, argument when the case was struck out uh, by the Human Rights Tribunal without even having a hearing. They just said, look, this cannot succeed. Uh, and ultimately, the way the Court of Appeal uh, approached it is that they were looking at what is the appropriate test for the Human Rights Tribunal dismissing uh, an application outright without first conducting a hearing? Uh, and then was their exercise of discretion in that regard unreasonable in a way that a court could interfere with it? Uh, and the Court of Appeal concluded, uh, and was re referencing an earlier decision, that the mere possibility of discrimination cannot be enough to require a hearing. Uh, and they said, well, you know, there can be circumstances where you can point to reasonable inferences that can be drawn that might make it past that test, mm -hmm. but mere speculation that that might have been a factor isn't going to be enough to get you a hearing. Mm -hmm. So, right, there's no doubt that, you know, those sort of the basic facts aren't, dis you know, aren't disputed. He was using a gay dating app. There are other people that uh, used other apps that uh, weren't uh, aimed at uh, gay men that weren't fired. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, there were some elements here like, you know, evidence that he posted on his profile that he worked at UBC uh, and he was connecting with students. And one of the students he connected with was somebody he had counseled. Yes. <laughs> right. So uh, the uh, the point that the Court of Appeal made was that the uh, tr the original tribunal decision dismissing it was a, a reasonable one because speculation is not enough. Right. You can't just say well, I think this was a factor, or I, I believe it or could have been, and so I want a hearing to be able to explore whether it was. Uh, and so the uh, Court of Appeal upheld both the uh, tribunal decision, the judicial review, uh, and this is, uh, as a result, likely the end of it, finding that uh, this fact pattern was uh, not enough to proceed, and the decision made by the uh, tribunal to dismiss it uh, was an appropriate one. Michael Mulligan, a pleasure as always. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. During the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX 1070, Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, Barrister and Solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll be right back.